Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at IPA and your host for this episode. I'm back with another Freight Friday edition of First State Insights, brought to you through a partnership of IPA and the Delmarva Freight Working Group, an ongoing transportation planning and economic development partnership coordinated by IPA, the Delaware Department of Transportation, and Delaware's three metropolitan planning organizations, the Dover-Kent County MPO, the Salisbury-Wacomico MPO, and Wilmapco. My guest is Brian Glick. Brian has made a career of simplifying complex supply chain and trade compliance IT challenges, and he's the founder and CEO of Chain.io, a Philadelphia-based company offering a supply chain integration platform that represents a new approach to an age-old supply chain question. How do we make all of these systems and people work together? On January 17th, 2022, I spoke with Brian about what's new and old about current supply chain integration challenges. Let's get to the conversation. Thanks for joining me today, Brian. Thank you for having me. Wanted to talk about kind of the elephant in the room, which I guess is supply chain has been in the news at least the last year in a way that casual consumers of the news, I don't think have experienced before. And I wonder from your perspective, what's new or different or familiar about what we're going through? So I think what's new is very much the scale of it. What we had come together, which I don't think you see as much on the news, is a series of events that came together. So if we look at the last 40 years, there's been an absolute effort to optimize every single piece of the supply chain to the point where there's no slack in the system. And going back to 2016, we started with tariffs that caused people to change your supply chains and try to bring more product in ahead of uh, all of those different things we were hearing with China tariffs and other countries and, and all of that. And then we added on top of that, a lot of consolidation and mergers and acquisitions that sort of shifted around priorities and balances. And then COVID hit. So when you have a system that maybe could absorb one of those things or two of those things, it certainly couldn't absorb three. And since everything was optimized from end to end, the trucking, the ocean, the, the warehousing, nothing had enough slack to pick up for the other pieces. So essentially, the whole system froze up. And so optimization sounds like a really good word in general. So do you de-optimize? What, what's kind of the terminology or the practicality of it moving forward? Optimization in and of itself is not a bad thing. The question is, what are you optimizing for? An example that, that we use all the time in software business, especially at Chain.io, is NASA optimizes for minimum failure rates, right? So they don't optimize for costs. They optimize for let's not kill anyone. And so they spend an extraordinary amount of money to do something that could be done a lot cheaper if you're willing to accept that 20% of the time it was going to blow up. And so you look at that and you just look at priorities. And so we have really optimized in supply chain for one priority for many, many years. And what we're now going to see is basically a balanced scorecard of optimizations as opposed to saying, look, if it's cheaper, it's better. Uh, and then occasionally we said, if it's faster, it's better, but really only if it's still cheaper. And now it's more of, is it fast, cheap, and reliable? And so adding that third one, and then we're actually adding a fourth one of 
and environmentally responsible and socially responsible. And they go on. And so that scorecard is a lot harder to sit in a meeting with non-supply chain people and say, okay, yes, I know you want 2% more on the gross margin for the product for the year, but it has to balance against these other six factors. So now we're essentially armed to have those conversations, which is, which is a, a silver lining, I guess. Yeah. And it seems like there's less being shared on social media about stack ups at the port, for example, uh, ports rather. Are we getting out of this or are we just kind of accepting it as kind of normal at the moment? I don't think we're necessarily getting out of it in the sense of it will magically go away. I think there are deep structural concerns around the motivations and the alignment of priorities amongst everyone. And this, you know, this happens in any distributed system that has lots of companies and lots of things that, uh, you know, they look at the ports and the truckers say, if the, you know, port would just be more efficient, we could get our trucks in and out. And the port says, well, if the truckers didn't no show so often, we would be able to be more efficient. And then everyone points at the carriers and says, well, if they just weren't, you know, evil and they, you know, wave their hands at that. And, you know, so there's a lot of little pieces that have to kind of shake out in order for this to get more normalized. What we've been discussing with our customers is that the new normal will not be the old normal. That if the probably the factor that we didn't even mention in those other stacks is e-commerce and the fact that we're now ordering tons of stuff in very small quantities and we have a system that was built around large 40-foot containers and reliable 180-day plans and you know, bringing in things in large volumes in order to, again, optimize for cost. So there's going to be some very smart people doing some very smart things over the next few years on the buying side of supply chain to make product move through these newer systems more effectively. But I think right now we're at that point where an old model and a new model have collided. And that's always very, very painful. So where does your company fit into that kind of collision between the old and the new? What are you bringing to the table? So we, our job is to connect the old and the new. So what we do at Chain.io is work with startups and innovative uh, tech companies and also companies that have legacy systems or mainframes and get the data moving between all of those systems. So we'll have customers come to us and say, I've got a system that sends purchase orders out. It was built in the 70s. I don't know how it was built. I don't have it documented. Everyone's retired. And we can make a couple little adjustments around the edge. And they say, but I want to work with this startup who none of their employees were born in the 70s. And how do we make those things together? So we connect to both of those systems in the language that they need and make the process work. And then we do that across hundreds and hundreds of systems. So to, to put it in kind of public administration terms, so I, I, I teach a class in innovation in the public sector. And one of the examples we talk about is the IRS using systems that are fairly out of date in many cases, not for lack of trying to get the funding to, to make it right, but it just has not happened. And every year there's these calls for COBOL programmers to help kind of get the tax return system over the finish line for that year. I mean, what, what does the situation look like in the supply chain world in terms of the hardware, the software, the diversity of applications that are out there that you're trying to connect? 
it's similar to that example with one more wrinkle, which is having a thousand or 10,000 different IRSs out there. So one of the things that's extremely unique about supply chain, uh, and I often compare this to financial technology, where in financial technology, you've got a lot of banks and a lot of financial institutions, but they all sort of operate the same way. You don't go into a bank and argue on the first day about what the definition of a check is or what the definition of a savings account is. It's sort of established behaviors. Supply chain is really more of a concept than a business. So everyone does things differently. You know, one of our customers exports, uh, you know, just mined rock and stone out of the country. Another one imports pharmaceuticals. They don't have any conceptual similarity in how they think about it, but ultimately they're moving containers around the world. So we have that same problem of lots of legacy systems layered on top of a very, very highly distributed and diverse world. What we learned at Chain.io, and it actually wasn't where we started was that in the solution to that problem is not create a standard and ask everyone to meet the standard. It's to build the most flexible and agile system that can go meet all of these companies where they are. Because just like your IRS example, you know, they can't rebuild that system. It's not actually feasible to just gut an entire system that's been running for what I'm assuming is 50 years and just say, okay, well, next year, we're just not going to have it. It's a, you know, that's a many decades long project. So if you want to be innovative in using tax information, you better meet the IRS where they are and then add something on top of it, not just stick your head in the sand and say, I'm going to just not acknowledge the, the last 50 years of work that was done. Yeah. So kind of with your comment of optimization becoming more of a dashboard kind of mentality versus one thing we're optimizing for. Can you give a sense of what your customers are optimizing for or what the diversity is across different customers? So one of the things we're seeing a great deal of optimization around is speed to price. This is on the logistics side in particular. The time it takes to figure out what the cost of a moving a particular anything from one side of the world to the other when I started in this business, you would send the request from the customer to the pricing desk, and they might get back to you in five days. It's okay, I've called a trucker, I've called an ocean carrier, and we've assembled this price, and it took a week. In five years, the acceptable time for that to happen will likely be in the hundreds of milliseconds or seconds, because systems will just be sourcing freight. I believe that sort of long-term contracts and this idea of a very stable environment is going to go away because the reason we have all of those things today is because it was very expensive to get to a price. So you say, I'm just going to set a price for the next six months so I can just deal with it. And that that's all going to become much more transactional. And if you look at the trucking business, it's been that way for a long time. In the international freight, it's always been a laggard to that. So that's an area where we see on both sides of the relationship, the buying and the selling side, the influences of e-commerce affecting a B2B process where it's if we can optimize that. So we, so we see a lot of investment in pricing tools and then integrating those into websites and also into APIs and all of these things to get to a price faster. Probably the more obvious answer for everyone is where's my stuff? And all of these tracking APIs and companies like Forkites and Project 44 and Terminal 49 who are providing all of this visibility 
that's a foundational layer to almost everything else. So that's also been a very big area of growth. And so when you say speed to price for novices in the industry, you're talking, how quickly can I determine how much it's going to cost to get this, whatever material from here to there at this time of the year? Yeah. So I have a container or I'm about to have a container coming off of an assembly line in Shanghai, and I need to have it at my warehouse in Indianapolis. And so someone, I'm going to send 10 companies a you know specifications. It's a 40-foot container. It's full of t-shirts and I need it there in anywhere between, you know, let's say 35 to 42 days. How much is it going to cost you? How are you going to route it? There's a million ways you could send it on a vessel to the East Coast, to the West Coast. You could air freight that product. You could send it to the West Coast and truck it, put it on a rail line. So companies have to get through basically as many permutations as Google Maps has to go through to get you to the corner store of all the possible ways you could drive there. And so that has been more of an art than a science over the last couple of decades where there's people who specialize in that and they are being displaced by systems that are very smart. But what we have to do is get all of that data into those systems so that it can figure out all of those prices and and so on and so forth. And that's a very big growth area that I don't think a lot of people are talking about quite yet. And so you're, as you said, you're in the business of connecting those new systems, kind of the technology startup world with the legacy systems in the supply chain space. How do you determine that's an issue? First of all, how do you come to the table and decide you want to be involved in this industry? Well, I got into this industry by accident. I found a job in a paper newspaper and I circled it and I sent off a resume to actually run wiring from an old mainframe to the green screen terminals at an office uh, here in Philadelphia, uh, right down the street from the customs house. And the reason the location of the office was important was we would print the paperwork off of those, those mainframes and run it to customs and get a stamp every day for every shipment. So there were people whose job was to run the paperwork to customs. I figured I would do that for a few weeks, maybe a few months, and then I'd go find a more interesting job. And I started seeing all the problems and helping to fix processes and replacing big pouches of paper that was being mailed back to Europe with scanners and email. And I got hooked. And uh, the day I can't find another problem to fix in this industry, I will go to another industry. But it is one of the most complicated things I've ever seen from a system standpoint. And it just every morning we wake up and have another one of these problems like pricing to solve. And where's Chain.io now? And where, where would you envision it being in, let's say, five years and beyond? What are your goals and how do you get there? So we're just coming up on our fifth birthday. Where we are now is we have built the foundation of the company that can execute these transactions across all of these different supply chain components. We did about 9 million of these transactions in, uh, I think it was in November. We haven't Pull the December numbers yet, but they're uh, you know going to be even bigger. Every month gets bigger. We're connecting some of the back planes for some of the largest shipping companies in the world between their websites and their processing systems and their billing. And where we where we'll be in another five years, and this is what gets me really excited, is to be the de facto way that people do this. That 
it is much easier in the world if one company is providing this layer and everyone can plug into it than if there's 12 of them. And effectively, the, the analogy of Visa and opening a store and saying, hey, you know, I may or may not take Bitcoin in my store, but I'm definitely going to take Visa because it's just going to work and people have that expectation that we are on a trajectory to be that company for supply chain where everyone can just assume that when they meet someone else, that both companies don't even have to have the conversation. They just know they'll be connected into our network or the software they use will be. And we just eliminate that pain and that friction because all of the teams I've managed through my career in supply chain, this has always been the number one pain point is I want to work with a new service provider, a new trucker, a new airline, and every single time it's painful. And so our goal is to just be like, we don't need that pain anymore. We're just all connected to Chain.io and we can go talk about much more interesting things than, than data processing. What does your team look like? I mean, what, what are their occupations? Are they computer scientists, computer engineers? So the diversity in our team is that we have a lot of computer engineers and we have a lot of really smart supply chain people who help us build the data model that sits in the middle that brokers the data between all of these systems. So the reason we're good at supply chain and the reason we don't do healthcare billing or we don't do fintech processing or I deal with the IRS is we are very, very good at modeling how these systems use the words around supply chain. You know, one of my favorite sort of layperson example is if someone sends you a piece of paper and it says arrival date on it to a layperson, that probably means when is this thing getting to my house? But on a shipment, arrival date could mean the date that the ship arrives at Los Angeles and anchors outside of the port. It could mean the date that it arrives at the port. It could mean the date that it leaves the port, the date it hits the warehouse. So we've got all of these great supply chain analysts who sit and talk to these companies. Well, what do you mean by arrival date? So that we don't connect the wrong date to the wrong date across two systems. So we have a wonderful team of analysts and then a wonderful team of developers that translates that into a system and then solutions architects who go out with our customers and help them understand how to use these tools to actually solve real problems. Because none of this applies if you don't know where it fits into your business and where these processes are actually going to help. So those are really the three big areas of kind of specialization in our company. We don't do a lot of what people would call high tech at this point. Not we, We're not an AI company. We're not doing machine learning. We're not doing any of this cool, fun stuff. But we have partners on our network who are doing all those things. And the reason they can do it is because we're doing the very boring mechanical things that have to happen under the hood so that they have good data to do all of that other fun stuff. And to do the very boring things, you have to have people who kind of know how the system works. You do. We um, get asked a lot uh, by sort of people outside the industry about, you know, sort of why, they, why would we start this company? And the answer is that if you haven't been doing this for 20 years, this is not the problem you pick because it's two layers below the fun problem. And so you really have to be an industry insider to pick a problem that is several layers you know, beneath the surface. It's not a thing that you're sitting at Stanford in a class going, hey, let me go solve data integration. 
you go and solve the machine learning problem that sits on top of this. There must be a lot of people and companies trying to address the pain that you talked about in these interactions and transactions. I wonder, what's the special thing that you and your team brings to the table? Pragmatism, probably more than anything. I don't believe in technical problems. I believe in business problems that have technical solutions. And what we're doing differently is elevating the conversation from I have an XML file that needs to be a YML file to I have to get a price to my customer faster so I can win more business. And when you elevate that, then you can solve much more interesting problems much faster. And many of the companies in this space see themselves as technology-first companies. And there are some great tools out there, some of which we use under the hood that do the mechanical piece probably better than us, but they can't solve that next tier problem. And so that really is the differentiator for us is that ability and just complete focus on solving business problems, not technical problems. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of physically what this looks like. And I guess when I say physically, I, I mean... You know, people can kind of identify with trucks on the road and, oh, we see an Amazon vehicle or a warehouse that popped up to enable kind of my next day purchases. You know, don't identify as much with like, let's say, data warehouses that Amazon might use to make decisions on its own or help other companies make decisions. What's the physical look and feel of what you have going on? Where are you? Where, where would you be if you're the de facto standard in five years? So the short answer is that we are everywhere and we need to be everywhere. We started from day one as a company. We're, we're based here in Philadelphia, but we have been a distributed team from day one because we knew that the decision makers and the way these processes work are inherently global and that we have as many customers in Europe and Asia as we do in the US even even out of the gate, I would say even in our first 10 or 15 customers, they were, they were pretty evenly spread. So what that's allowed us to do is recruit just incredible talent wherever that talent is. We currently have teams mainly in the, in the Western Hemisphere, but that's, that's going to be shifting soon, but really everywhere from Uruguay to Vancouver. Uh, and that's, that's shifting to Europe as well very soon to support a lot of our European customers. What is it? physically look like we have a very boring demo because our system is really that it's it's like having your plumber show you what's behind the walls uh it's not as nice as the faucet i saw that uh one of the faucet manufacturers has a had a smart faucet at ces a few weeks back and it had all of the things you could talk to it or wave your hand around it what we do is plumbing and so the way that we help our customers visualize it uh the exercise we do when we kick off with a customer is we hand them a stack of index cards and we say, we're going to set up in a room and went back when we could all be in rooms together. And we would actually write, okay, shipment one, and people would play the roles and pass this index card around of it's the warehouse, has to give it to the trucker, has to give it to the port, has to give it to the ocean carrier, and so on down this line. And it helped you visualize what our data is doing, which is, did I write enough stuff on this index card at the beginning? to give the next person enough information to write more on the index card and pass it on down the line until we can get a delivery 
and actually know that we had all the information to bill it and do all of those things. So essentially, we're taking that index card and virtually passing it around the world, and everyone's adding a little information, writing it in different languages, and then we have to translate it so the next person can read it and kind of move that token down the line. And the virtual passing around the world, is it passing around the world because that's where the talent is? or because you need hands-on kind of different operations around the world or both? Uh, a little of both. I would say more the latter, that there is still a very localized set of expertise. You can theoretically procure and provision freight from anywhere, but I will tell you that if you're trying to get your product out of O'Hare Airport today and you don't have a relationship with the right trucker in Chicago, it's not coming out today. I would sit in our offices when I was in more closely related to this and watch the team work the phones and sweet talk the truckers and, and do all of the things that you have to do to make those things move. There is a very still specialized, localized expertise sitting on top of what look like these completely automated global systems. You go down three, four layers and there's somebody calling a port and saying, do you know where in the stack that container is and can you get it to me? So why Philadelphia now? And is Philadelphia the place in five years? Why Philadelphia now? Because I'm from here and I love it here. And I made a commitment to the startup community in Philadelphia back when I started my first company about 12 years ago to really do my best to keep my company here because we have had it's not, the, it's not the easiest place always to start a company. A lot of legacy regulations and tax structures and, and what have you. But uh, I believe that, especially as we have a distributed team now, that we need to invest in all the local communities so that people can live where they want to and where it makes them happy. Uh, I moved away from here for work and moved back. And you know, we look at our team now that's, again, spread all over the place that you know, we think about things like for the holidays, we made donations to all of the local food banks. And I think every company should be doing its best to contribute to the business community and the, and the actual community uh, where people live. And, and the promise of technology is you can live wherever you want. And so there's a commitment to that, to saying, well, I'm going to live in the place I want to live for my family and for my employees' families more so than let me optimize for the greatest tax rate or the greatest, you know, uh, what have you now. The counterpoint to that is, you know, if we were in New York or if we were in Shanghai or if we were in London, could we have more business because those are bigger shipping hubs? Possibly, but that's where we can now hire great people and have them all working together virtually so that we do have those local relationships in those different places. But for me, this is, this is where I'm from and it's, uh, Absolutely a city that I love. And last question for you here. I mean, what advice would you give to, let's call them the general public, uh, reading the newspaper about supply chain issues, about how to make sense about what's going on now and how things might change over the next few years? What should we keep in mind amidst the headlines of the day? I think actually it was, I'm going to steal something from one of your previous guests. Uh, so you had Eric Johnson on and he's the one who tweeted this. Uh, so I want to give him appropriate credit, but he said, we do not have a crisis in this country around supply chain in the sense that 
uh, you know, we don't actually have bread lines, right? We're not actually, what we have is an overabundance of choice that is becoming, maybe you have a few less choices, which is drastically different than I can't feed my family tomorrow. And I think we get, we're getting a little worked up over the fact that the number of choices of cereal in my cereal aisle may have gone down from 37 to 22, right? We're, we're going to be okay. And many of the things that we're looking at as supply chain crises are very much crises to the companies that are, you know, if we went from 37 to 22 and you're in that 15, it's crisis. But as a society, we are a long way from where we are to not being able to function, you know, and, and meet basic needs. So as consumers, you know, and I just bought a house the other day and we're trying to fill the house up with, you know, just I need this washer or this little thing. Yeah, it's been a little harder and I've had to, you know, go search out some things. But, you know, heat's on, food's in the in the pantry, everything's going to be okay. And, you know, we just can't get too dramatic about some of this stuff. Well, I appreciate that dose of perspective. Everything's going to be okay is always good advice. So <laughs> I appreciate you ending on that, Brian, and taking time to speak with me today. Thank you. For more on the work of Brian and his team at Chain.io, browse to chain.io or follow Brian on Twitter at BGLICK. For more details on the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration, visit our website at ipa.udel.edu. Thanks for tuning in to this special Freight Friday edition of First State Insights. Reach out with comments, subscribe to the podcast, and tune in again soon. Take care.